All right, happy Sunday. Good afternoon. All right, so this is a really special day. Uh, two reasons why. Number one, um, because today is my wife's 57th birthday. Yeah, 57. All right. Uh, so uh, send her a text or, or flowers or something. Uh, the second reason why, and the most important reason why today is uh, a very important day, is because today is today. Today is today. And that's what I want to try to communicate to you from the Word of God. Let me explain what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to explain it. And then after that, I'm going to try to apply it to you. Let me just say, it has been way too long since I have been with you. I have not preached to this congregation since January of 2020, and quite a few things have changed since then, but I see a number of familiar faces, and I am as happy as can be to be here uh, this afternoon. So when I agreed to preach this sermon, I just told Anthony, I'm going to preach, but I'm just going to preach whatever I preached at my own church uh, that morning. So I've already preached the sermon twice today. Um, unfortunately for you, normally when I preach, <laughs> when I preach a sermon, uh, I use one of these spiral-bound, seventy-page uh, notebooks, wide rule. I normally fill in about thirty pages. Uh, for this particular sermon, uh, I wrote up fifty pages. So, <laughs> so. So we're going to be here for a while. Um, it's raining outside. There's nothing better to do today. Uh, but I'm very joyful to be here uh, right now. I'm very happy. I'm very honored that you have asked me to be here. And, and I love you. Uh, I really, uh, from the bottom of my heart, I really, I really love you. Uh, and I do thank you for uh, taking care of my daughter and my, my son-in-law. Uh, it's just a delight to be here. So I would ask, please, that you would turn to Hebrews chapter 4. A little bit of a mistake in your bulletin. One of them is my mistake, and one of them is Anthony's mistake. Um, so my mistake is that we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, not verse 12. Anthony's mistake, and I think the molds might be the only people in the room who are old enough to, to, to detect this mistake, he has titled the sermon The End of the Story, when in reality the title of the sermon is The Rest of the Story. Anybody old enough to remember Paul Harvey and the rest of the story? Wow. All right, speak to your grandparents. It was a it was a really it was a really good radio show back in the sixties. Um, all right, so I'm going to read the passage, but before I do, just let me say this: there are some movies that you watch where you can get up in the middle of the movie and you can uh, go fix yourself a snack. You can even run to the mini mart. You can come back and you miss nothing because. Basically, you're going to be able to figure out the plot, and it sort of all just works itself out. There are other movies where you constantly have to just push pause and turn to someone in the room and say, what just happened, or can you explain that to me, or rewind it and listen to it again. This is one of these sermons where 
you really can't get up and fix yourself a snack mentally. And, and let's be honest, this is Sunday, we're in church, we all have to be honest. There are times during every sermon, not intentionally, but in actuality, where I myself, and you do it as well, there's a time where you have to check out or where you excuse yourself. You go on a little day, daydream and then you come back and you're pretty much able to stay with the sermon. Shouldn't do that, but we do do that. This is one of those sermons where you can't do that because it's a, it's, it's, it's a very difficult, at least for me, a very difficult passage to understand. So I'm going to read the passage, and as I do, what I want you to do is concentrate, and I want you to ask yourself, as I'm reading the passage, does this make sense to me? Does this make English sense to me? Does this make logical sense to me? Can I connect the dots and follow a logical flow through the passage? If, after I read it, you answer by saying yes, I would say to you, you are in the wrong line of work. You need to be a pastor or a seminary professor because for me, this is kind of difficult to understand. That being said, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Father in heaven, every time we read your word, we hear your voice. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have Bibles. We thank you that we have eyesight. We thank you that we have ears. We thank you that we can read. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a brain to understand. Lord, we, we are thankful for 
even what we have taken in so far from hearing your voice. Yet, Father, we must confess that there are times when we read passages of Scripture when they, they seem a little bit more obscure or confusing to us. Lord, would you please overcome our frailties? We confess, Lord, that the problem is not with the Word of God, but the problem is with us. And so, Lord, would you open our minds? Would you open our hearts? Would you, by your spirits now, Lord, please give us an attentiveness to the Word that we might become very interested in what is being taught here and that we might comprehend it. But then, Lord, even more than that, that we might be moved to love you more and to do your will more vigorously. Lord, help me as I preach today. I pray, dear Lord, that I would be able to maintain the joy that I have right now and maintain the compassion that I have right now. Lord, I pray that you would enable me to explain this clearly. Lord, that I might glorify you in the proclamation of the word this day. And I pray, dear God, when we walk out of this church, I pray, dear Lord, that we will love you more than we do right now as a result of having studied your inerrant word. This we ask in the name of our friend and our king, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so the main point of the Bible is Jesus. The main point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. And the main point of Hebrews chapter 4 is that Jesus gives us rest. Uh, Hebrews 4, and it kind of goes without saying, but you really need to hear it. Hebrews 4 comes in the context of Hebrews chapter 3. And you would ask yourself, well, what is Hebrews chapter 3? Well, Hebrews chapter 3, for the most part, is an exhortation or a warning. Uh, basically stating that you can only consider yourself to be saved if you hang on to the end. You are not saved by hanging on, but an evidence that you are saved is that you will hang on, that you will persevere to the end. You're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. But the indicator that we indeed are saved is that we will persevere in faith and obedience. And the author of the book of Hebrews gives us two arguments with this exhortation in order to bolster or to support his point. The first argument or illustration that he uses are the children of Israel in the wilderness. They go 430 years in Egypt and then they leave and they work their way across the wilderness. And as they're working their way across the wilderness, they fail to believe God's promises. And as a result, God causes them or tells them that anybody over the age of 20 cannot enter the promised land. So for 38 years, they wander around and die in the wilderness. That is illustration number one. They did not enter the promised land. The other means that the author uses in order to make this point is an exposition or an explanation or a sermon which comes from Psalm 95. And what Psalm 95 is, it is an inspired commentary written by David about the children of Israel walking through the wilderness. So when this author moves from chapter 3 into chapter 4, he does not know that he is moving from chapter 3 into chapter 4 because the chapter numbers and the verse numbers were not added until hundreds of years later. Uh, by the way, if you want to know where your chapter numbers came from, they were 
put in there in about the year 1250. And the verse numbers were put in the year 1550. So, so this guy, he's just writing. He's, he's, he's doing an exposition of Psalm 95, but he doesn't know that he's moving from chapter 3 into chapter 4. So keep that in mind. Everything that we're going to study this afternoon is built upon what he has already said in chapter 3, and we don't have time to review all of chapter 3. But the continuation of the exposition of Psalm 95 is the point. I will give you a summary of chapter 3, and it can be summed up in one verse, and that is the final verse of chapter 3, and that is this. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they, the children of Israel, were unable to enter, enter the promised land because of unbelief. Now as we move into chapter 4, I've got 13 verses for you. I have a grand total of zero points. I'm not going to enumerate them at all. We are just going to do a running commentary through these 13 verses. And we start off in our English Bibles with the word therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is it therefore? Therefore, in light of the children of Israel who could not enter the promised land, therefore for us, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. In other words, while you still have an opportunity to be saved, the door is not closed, the door is still open. That's what it means that it still stands. Um, you know, with everything being closed down with COVID, uh, you want to get something to eat, you want to go shopping, you don't know if anything is going to be open. So you take out your phone and you type in their, their website and you, you look at it and you'll see something that says open now. What does that mean? That means it's really good news. It means that you can go there at that time and shop or eat it doesn't mean that it will stay open forever, but it means that it still stands. It is still open. Now, the next phrase, and I need you to try to track this logically. The next phrase after this says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Is it just me? Or does this, on the surface, seem very incongruent? Like, it doesn't seem to match. It seems as though it is out of place or unexpected. If I were the writer of Scripture, and I had my quill and my parchment, and I were writing, therefore, since the promise of entering is still open, therefore, what I would write is, let us rejoice! because it is not closed and there still is an opportunity for salvation. But this author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls for a different response. And he says, what you ought to do in light of the fact that the door is still open is that you should fear. And by the way, fear here does not mean reverential awe or respect, although we ought to have a reverential awe and respect for God. Here, the word fear means fear. Now, let me pause for a second and tell you a little bit about the people to whom this book was written. It was written about the year 66 or 67 AD to a group of Jewish Christians in Rome who were in the process of or about to go through intense persecution. 
Uh, they have professed faith in Christ, but they are contemplating a departure from Christianity back into Judaism. Are they saved? I think the answer, as you read chapters 3 and 4, is that remains to be seen. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Who is, who is not. That is going to be determined by whether or not they persevere. And given the sentiment of this fence-sitting or this potential backsliding, we're not really sure who is saved at this point, and therefore fear is what is commanded. And so it feels something like this. Since the door is still open today, but knowing that the door will one day close, you better act now. You better take this seriously. You better fear. One verse down, 12 to go. Verse 2. For good news, here's why we ought to fear. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In other words, God has demonstrated in the past that he doesn't leave the door open forever. Uh, the children of Israel had the message of the gospel preached to them. And they had the gospel preached to them before they even left. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The Passover lamb was a gospel message which they received. Uh, they're thirsty. They go to Moses. God says to Moses, take your stick, hit the rock, and the water comes out. We know that that rock was Christ from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, when they get up in the morning and they're hungry and they go outside and they get something to eat, what are they picking up? They're picking up the bread of heaven. What is the bread of heaven? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So they're seeing gospel, gospel, gospel. They're seeing it in miraculous ways. They have a really clear promise. And the promise is, I'm going to take you, God says, into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It is a land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they have a clear command. And that is, enter into the land. Clear gospel. Miraculous gospel. Clear command. Uh, 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 clear instructions and promise. But it didn't ultimately help them. It didn't help them because they didn't have faith. Uh, you see, they had a really nice car, but they did not have any gasoline. And, and as we read back in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that every transgression or disobedience uh, that is, when the children of Israel in the wilderness who had received the Ten Commandments and the law from God, that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. In other words, when those people sinned back then, they got punished for it, arguing then from the lesser to the greater, not that we are greater than they are, but the covenant that we have, the gospel that we have is clearer and greater, arguing from the lesser to the greater. How in the world do we think that we, we who have the full-blown gospel of Christ crucified and risen, how do we think that we will escape if we neglect such great salvation? And the implied answer is, well, we won't. They didn't, and we won't. Therefore, the command makes perfect sense to me now that they need to pay attention and persevere and hold fast and don't drift away. Fear, persevere, press on. In order to be redundant, which I'm going to try to do this afternoon, what he's saying is, 
you and Skies both got the message. They got the message, and you got the message. They didn't mix it with faith, and they died, and they didn't enter in. Therefore, you better fear, based upon what happened to them, because you, if you do not have an abiding faith, you will not enter in either. Are you kind of with me so far? Okay, all right. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now again, <laughs> is it just me? In my simple mind, and it's the only one I have to work with, in my simple mind, this at first glance does not seem to fit. For we who have believed, uh, that is believed in Christ, in his death in our place and resurrection, we who have believed enter, literally the, the tense there is, are in the process of entering the rest. Pause with me and let me define rest at this point. Rest here is not talking about um, a physical rest, a rejuvenation from being tired. Rest here does not refer to national rest. When God took the people of Israel into the promised land, although that will be spoken of a little bit later. Here's what I think rest means. I think it can mean one of three things. And I'm not really sure which one it means. It either means being saved in the here and now, or it means ultimate salvation in heaven, or it means a combination of the both. Of both, You are saved now and you will be saved forever. I'm not really sure which one it is, and I'm not really sure that it matters. But for our purposes today, let's equate or define the word rest as salvation. Now, working with this thing we call logic again. We who have believed are in the process of entering that rest. Stop right there. Stop. At this point, if I am the gospel writer, if I am the, the writer of this epistle, and I have my quill, and I have my, part, my parchment, and if I have just told these people who are in the process of being saved, and I was going to go to the Old Testament, and I was going to reinforce this, and I was going to give them some encouragement, and I was going to bolster my argument with something from the Old Testament, I would write something like this. We who have believed enter that rest. As he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Or I would write, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. Or I would write, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But he doesn't. Instead, he draws from the passage, that is the Psalm 95 passage that he is exegeting, he draws this. Do you see where these things don't really appear to fit together? For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It seems to be saying the exact opposite thing of what he is wanting it to say. Well, how in the world does this all fit together? Well, here's the key. Remember that I told you 
about 20 minutes ago that he was exegeting Psalm 95. So his thoughts, his heart is, is, is taking us back to Psalm 95. And the quote that he gives us is from Psalm 95. He only wants us to concentrate on the last two words. My rest. And in so doing, he wants us to know that God has a rest. Now, the first 10 words of this 12-word English quote are simply there for context. It has nothing to do in the flow of the argument with God swearing an oath. God did swear an oath. That is true. We are not denying that. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. That is not part of the argument. God is a God of wrath. That can be proven many places in the Bible. I am in no way denying it. That is not why he is drawing from Psalm 95. They shall not enter. Well, they did not enter. And that is a, that's a proven fact. I agree with that. But that is not part of the argument. All he wants you to do is to see this. In Psalm 95, God has something called my rest. The rest of it is just there for context. Important, important, important. It's time to pay attention very closely now. When we read of my rest from Psalm 95, he is not referring to a rest that God will grant you, which you yourself will enjoy throughout eternity. However, there is a rest which God will grant you, which you will enjoy throughout eternity. But that's not what he means when he says my rest. When he says my rest, it is referring to the rest which God himself began to enjoy on the seventh day of creation and he himself enjoys forevermore. It is his rest. We are entering into his rest. We are not granted a rest. We will be granted a rest, but that's not what it's saying here. His rest is the rest that he himself enjoys. So the only point that he's drawing from Psalm 95 verse 11 is the last two words, my rest, and the fact that we have believed and enter or are entering that rest is something which God wrote, and this is important for the argument, which God wrote through the pen of David 450 years after the wilderness wanderings. But for now, all you need to know is that God has a rest, which was declared by David long after the wilderness promise. Then when we get to the rest of verse 3, it just seems confusing. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then he throws this in, Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What does that even mean? What he's saying here is that it says in Psalm 95, even though his rest was spoken of by David, it actually was initiated long before David 
It was initiated on the seventh day of creation. God has rested in that he himself enjoys a Sabbath rest on the seventh day, and it goes on forever. He offered that rest to the children of Israel, but they could not enjoy that rest because of their unbelief. And he mentions it 450 years later through the pen of David, but its origins actually go back to the Garden of Eden. And what do you have there? You have God for six days speaking the universe into existence, six 24-hour days God worked. And then after that sixth day, he entered into his rest. Why? Because he was gassed? Because he was winded? Because he was tired? No, he entered into his rest because he was finished. Because the work was done. That's why he rested. And that's why we read in verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. I love how the author of the book of Hebrews writes. He quotes the Old Testament all the time, but he never tells you where the quote comes from. And he acts as though he doesn't even know where it's coming from himself. He just sort of throws in, well, it seems to me somewhere it says, no, he knows exactly where it comes from. And he assumes that they know it as well. But he's not going to give you the exact chapter and verse. But he's telling you that it has been written in Holy Writ somewhere that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And he knows that they know that that comes from Genesis chapter 2. And you're sitting there this afternoon saying, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. So what? Like, okay, right. What are we supposed to do with this? Why do we need to know that? And here's the key. He is doing it in order to demonstrate that the nature of God's rest is based upon the completion of a task. And that rest of God is referred to in Genesis 2 and in Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is quoted in Hebrews. So whatever that rest is, that rest of God from Genesis 2 to Psalm 95 now comes to us in the New Covenant through Hebrews chapter 4. God does not view rest in terms of refueling or rejuvenation or a break from the grind. You see, when we speak about the rest of God, it is an anthropomorphic term. What does that mean? It, it means that it is a concept which is put into terms that we can wrap our minds around or relate to concerning the Almighty, because in reality, God did not rest on the seventh day, for if he had totally and completely rested, 
Well, then the universe would have imploded and it would have disintegrated because he holds all things together by the word of his power. When it says he rested, it doesn't mean that he stopped working altogether. It means that he stopped creating. God works even on the Sabbath day. John 5, 17, Jesus makes it really clear that God never stops working. My father is working until now and I am working. God worked as a creator for seven days and then he worked also on the seventh day, but not as a creator. The work that he did on the seventh day was different. No longer creating. Why was he no longer creating, Carl? Because the work was finished. It was finished. And here's the key. When it was finished, he entered into his rest. But his rest was not a cessation of work, but a word picture that the project was finished. So in verse 4, we have it so that we will understand the nature of God's rest, a rest based upon a completed job. Now, as he goes into verse 5, what he is going to do is he is going to bounce back to Psalm 95. He has been in Psalm 95. He has gone to Genesis 2. Now he's going to bounce back to Psalm 95. Why is he doing this? He is doing it so that he can intentionally tie the passages together so that we will see that the type of rest between the Garden of Eden and what David writes about in Psalm 95 are the same. So let's bounce back to Psalm 95 in verse 5, and we read the words, and again. And when he says again, what he means is he is about to quote an Old Testament scripture. And again, just so that you will know, I am tying together Psalm 95 and Genesis chapter 2. And again, in this passage, what passage? The passage that he is exegeting, Psalm 95, he said, they shall not enter my rest. And again, don't pay attention to the words, they shall not enter, although they are true, but for, sa for the sake of the argument and the flow of the argument, the only thing that you need to know is that God has a rest. If up to this point you have not been paying attention, that is perfectly acceptable. Because verse 6 is a recap of everything that has been said up to this point. So if you want to jump on the train right now, you can ride it to the end and you will get everything. Verse 6 is a recap of everything that he has said up to this point. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, the door is still open. Not everybody's going to be saved, but there are some that are going to be saved. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, speaking of the children of Israel who didn't make it in, no amens. Why? Because it's not even a complete thought. He, 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 he has cut the thought off completely. Since the door is still open for some to be saved, and since the door was closed on the children of Israel, yes, 
Those are true statements. But there has to be some sort of a conclusion in order for it to be a logical point. And here's the key. From verses 7 through 10, he goes into a parenthetical statement. He completes the thought over in verse 11. Listen if I read 6 and then 11 immediately, how much sense it makes. It makes good English sense. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do you see where that kind of fits together nicely? Now what you have in verses 7 through 10 is, is a sidetrack, an excursus. A, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a parenthetical note. This is essential information, but this is not part of the mainstream flow argument of the text. The mainstream flow argument of the text is 6 into 11. More on that later. Let's now move into the parenthetical section, verses 7 through 10. Verse 7. And again, he points, he appoints a certain day. Today, which is from Psalm 95, today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, just as God appointed a day for himself in the Garden of Eden, which was the seventh day, so too God appoints another day for rest in Psalm 95, and do you know what that day is? It is today. Why is today such a special day? Well, not just because it is my wife's 57th birthday, but it is a special day because the door is still open. That's what makes today a special day. The door is still open. There's a lot of children that are here today. I don't know among the children who is saved, but I do want to tell you, children, that today is today, and today you can be saved. Today is a special day. Uh, yesterday, you can't do anything yesterday, and you can't do anything tomorrow. You're not even guaranteed that you're going to have tomorrow. But you know what you do have? You do have today. And David tells us that this is the most important day. And the author of Hebrews goes out of his way to point out that David said this long afterward. Long after what? Long after the wilderness debacle. 450 years after the wilderness debacle. And long after the wilderness rebound. What was the wilderness rebound? Well, they walked around for 38 years. The, the people who are over 20 years of age, they die. And then... Joshua rallies the troops, and they go into the land. They conquest. There's a conquest. Forty years after they leave Exodus, they go out of Egypt, and they go into the land. Joshua led the people into the land, and he gave them rest. Yes and no. I mean, he gave them rest in that they now have a homeland. 
but he did not give them Genesis 2, Psalm 95, Hebrews 4, rest. He gave them a different kind of rest. You see, there are different kinds of rests. I wish I could come up with a better illustration for this, but bear with me. Is anybody old enough to remember the brilliant ad campaign in the early 1980s from Anheuser-Busch for Bud Light? Man walks into a bar and he says, give me a light and like a light bulb falls from the ceiling or the bartender has a torch and he says, no, Bud Light. Anybody old enough to remember that? Anybody, thank you. Oh, just so thankful. So thankful for this, this couple who remember these beer commercials. Yeah, and, and or, or a guy sitting in, guy sitting in a booth and, and, and he says to the, to the, the, the waitress, a pitcher of light, and all of a sudden a picture of a light bulb appears in the booth, and he says, no, Bud Light. And then the narrator says, you need to be really specific as to what kind of beer, light beer you want, because they are not all made the same. I think that this is a very ironic illustration coming from someone who does not drink, and someone who does not want you to drink. So, so I'm not advocating beer in any way. I'm just saying that this is a really brilliant ad campaign, that there are different kinds of lights. Well, there are different kinds of rest, and you need to be specific as to what kind of rest that you are talking about. Give me a rest. Well, Joshua did not provide the kind of rest that Genesis 2 provided and that Psalm 95 Provided, And that's why he writes in verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, the rest that Joshua provided was, was, was not God's rest. And there would not have been a need for David 450 years later to write about entering God's rest. It already would have been completed. But the fact of the matter is, David does speak about God's rest in Psalm 95. And it is a Genesis 2 type of rest, not a book of Joshua conquest type of rest. So now we've come to one of the most, I believe, misunderstood verses in all the Bible. And that is chapter 4, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Most Sabbatarians, that is, those who believe in the fourth commandment, uh, that it is still in force today, in the Ten Commandments, the fourth is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The question is, is that still in force today? Are we still to keep it? And they will point to this verse, and they will say, here it clearly says that there is a Sabbath rest and it remains and it is for the people of God. And I will grant you that if you were to take tweezers and you were to extract this verse from its context, then that is theoretically what it could mean. However, I do not believe that it means that we are to be Sabbatarians and I will give you five reasons why. First of all, the first two words in verse 9 are, so then. 
And those words tell you that whatever was said in verse 8 is bleeding over into verse 9, that there is a logical flow from one into the other. And if you were to connect verse 8 with verse 9, with the so then or the therefore, and you were to do it with the assumption that verse 9 is talking about your require you're being required to keep the Sabbath day holy, it would read something like this. Joshua's conquest did not give God's people rest. But it is offered today, as David writes about, so much longer. Therefore, or so then, you have to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I don't know. I just don't see it. It doesn't seem to flow. It, it doesn't connect with the previous verse. The second reason is it does not connect with the next verse. And there is a word there. And that word tells us that we are supposed to connect it with the next verse. The first word in the next verse, verse 10, is the word for. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. If what verse 9 means is that we are to keep the Sabbath day, then it would read something like this. The people of God are to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy for or because whoever has entered into God's rest or become saved has also rested from his works as God did from his. And once again, it just don't make no sense to me. The third reason why I do not believe that it is talking about a requirement for us to keep the Sabbath day is because there is nothing up to this point in the book of Hebrews and there is nothing even in this chapter talking about the need for us to keep the Sabbath day. And if you read the rest of the book of Hebrews, there's nothing in it about keeping the Sabbath day. Theoretically, that might be what it's talking about. But if it is talking about that, it is talking about it completely void of all context whatsoever. However, he does talk about a day, which is a special day for us. And the special day for us is not the seventh day or the Sabbath day, you want to call it Sunday, you want to call it Saturday, you're a Seventh-day Adventist, it's Saturday, if you're a Christian Sabbatarian, it's Sunday. He doesn't talk about either one of those, but there is a day that he does talk about. And what is that day that he does talk about, which is important, and that is today. It is today. So if it's talking about the Sabbath day, it is, it's, it's just it's a stinking parachute coming in from out of the sky and just dropping in there with, with nothing around it. The main reason, number four, the main reason why I do not believe that this is talking about keeping the Sabbath day is because in chapter four up to this point, he is talking about something that still stands, something that remains. Verse one, it still stands. The door is still open. Verse six, therefore, it remains since it remains for the people to enter in. Why, if in verse 1 and in verse 6, when he is talking about what still stands or what remains, if it is a clear reference to the door still seeing, being open for salvation, would he all of a sudden switch and cause this to mean there is still, it still remains for you to have an obligation to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy? 
No, I think what it means is, what it means in the previous two places, that there still remains an opportunity for you to enter into Sabbath rest or salvation. Uh, the other reason why I believe that it is not uh, a command for us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is because of the cross-reference that we have back in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, which say, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The festival is annual, the new moon is monthly, the Sabbath is weekly. And look, if there was a command to keep the Sabbath day and you were not keeping the Sabbath day, somebody ought to be judging you. You ought to be being judged. But he says, don't let anybody judge you about those things. Why? Because there's shadows. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So for those five reasons, I don't think that he is talking about remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So, the grammar, the logic, the context, the cross-reference, it's not the command to observe the Sabbath. But what does it mean? Well, it does mean that there is an open door of rest for the people of God. It's an open door for salvation. And what kind of rest is it? It is a Sabbath rest. And what is a Sabbath rest? It is a Genesis 2 rest, where God rested in the Garden of Eden. And why did he rest? Because the job was finished. The kind of rest that is available today in Jesus Christ is a Sabbath rest, and it is only available in Jesus Christ, not in the observance of a day of the week. But it is available when we profess our faith in Christ, and we believe in him, and we embrace him, and we embrace the all-glorious truth of his work and his work being finished. Oh, and didn't he work? He left the splendor of heaven and came to earth through the womb of a virgin. That's work. And then he completely fulfilled the law perfectly at work. And he obeyed everything that his father to do. And that was work. And then he was beaten to a bloody pulp and our sins were put upon him. And he bore the wrath of God. And for six hours he hung upon the cross. And at the end of that, he cries out, what? It is finished. Why? Why? It's because it, the work is finished. The work of redemption was completed, and therefore the rest is offered. This doesn't mean that Jesus stopped working. He continues to work. But it means that the work needed in order to accomplish our redemption is done, finished, completed, through, wrapped up. And in light of that gospel truth, this, in verse 10, then, to me, makes sense. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, whoever has been saved by the finished work of Jesus is no longer striving through ritual or law-keeping or penance 
or benevolence or works to be saved. But what we are doing is we are resting just as God rested in that we are not looking any further for anything because it is all finished. God looked at creation, looked at it and said, you know what? That's good. I'm done. And I look to Christ and I say, that's good. I'm done. It is finished. You know, one of the sweetest things in the world, it's when you work really hard and you come home at the end of the day and you have a really comfortable chair and you are in that chair and there's this glorious battle that is going on where your eyelids can't stay open and you are just, you are just in. I mean, they could do surgery on you. You are just in. And, and, and one of your children, preferably when they're small, they crawl up into your lap and they like, they like find a place, you know, like right that spot right there. And all of a sudden their body goes limp, like no muscles are functioning at all. And they are just melting into you. You are resting and they are resting and it is a beautiful and it is a glorious rest. The day is done. You know what's really annoying? To work really hard to get in that chair for your eyes to be heavy, for that child to crawl in your lap and to squirm and to not get settled. Uh, my son Charlie has three children. The youngest is Merrick. Um, he just turned two. For some reason, Merrick has this fascination, this obsession with, with this mole right on the top of my lip right here. And he can't be around me, but what he won't like pick on the mole. God has invited us to rest, to crawl onto his lap and to rest. And Jesus invites us to rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and uh, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find uh, rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are not saved here today, come to Jesus. I mean, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired? Come to Jesus and confess your sin to him. Repent of those sins. Believe in him and rest in him. The door is open today. If you are saved, you are supposed to be resting in Christ. Are you resting in him? Thus brings to an end, not the sermon. Oh no, we are far from that. Thus brings to an end the parenthetical section of verses 7 through 10. Now we get back to the mainstream major argument, which went from verse 6 right into verse 11. Again, for a reminder, verse 6, 
Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, verse 11, let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And I read this and I say, is this author schizophrenic? I mean, what is going on here? In verse 10, he tells us that we are to rest. And then as soon as he tells us to rest, what does he say immediately after that? He says, therefore, let us strive. Now, can you make up your mind? Are we to rest or are we to strive? And the answer is yes. Because just as God continues to work, but not as a creator, as a creator, he rests, but he works every day. And just as Christ continues to work, but not working as a suffering substitute, so too we continue to work and to strive to enter in, not as one who earns God's favor and works for the forgiveness of our sins, but we strive and we work. Why? Because we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Yes, Ephesians 2.10. We're not working to be justified, but we are commanded to strive to enter that rest. And if we really are saved and have a new heart, then we will strive to enter that rest. If you know someone, and maybe you are this person, who claims to be a Christian, but yet they are not striving for holiness, it is a false claim. If you view your salvation as an event in the past, a decision which you made in the past, which requires no attention in order for it to be valid at the judgment, you are not saved. It is true that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and it did happen at a point in time. But the evidence that we have been saved is that we will strive to enter into that rest. In other words, it is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or in the language of Hebrews, and remember, I told you that this sermon began in chapter 3, in the language of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 6, we are God's house if, 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 conditional statement, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. And then you move on to Hebrews 3, 14, for we have come to share in Christ if, 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 conditional statement, if, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The children of Israel started off well, but they proved themselves to be false converts. Therefore, it now makes sense to me why in verse 1 he would tell them to fear, and why in verse 11 he says, let us strive. At the end of verse 11, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do you think that this falling refers to somebody just losing their joy? Absolutely not. This is talking about you being eternally damned. That is why he says fear. Which brings us to the biggest shock of the sermon, at least for me. So two weeks from today, I am going to be 60 years old. 
And for 59 years and 50 weeks, I have misunderstood Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And you do understand that this is a wonderful verse, but you also need to understand that this is like a refrigerator art verse. Okay, this is like women cross-stitch Hebrews 4, 12, and they... They frame it and they put it up, or you, or you, or you, you put it up. Uh, you write it on a three by five card and put it on a mirror or something. And and it is a wonderful verse. I'm not diminishing it. I've used it myself hundreds of times, but I have never looked at it in its context. For starters, the first word is the word for, which connects it with the previous verse. So if we read these two verses together it starts to add some meaning. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know how I've always read this verse? I've always read this verse the same way you've always read it. And that is that the Bible is a penetrating light and that it penetrates deep into the soul and it gets into all of the crevices. And it tells you things that, about yourself that nobody else knows. It will expose the facade that you are and the disguise that you present. And it gets right to the heart. And you know what? I believe that all of those things are true. I just don't think that's what it means right here. I believe that the context here is Psalm 95. That is the word of God to which he is referring. And in Psalm 95, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, Therefore, the word of God is living and active. It is speaking today. Today is still today. Today, if you will hear his voice. And he's speaking to people who are on the verge of not hearing his voice. And then he mentions a sword. Now, I don't know why for 59 years and 50 weeks, I always thought that that sword was like a surgeon's What's the word? Scaffold? Scaffolding is on the outside of the building. Scaffold is like a knife that a doctor uses to open you up to making minor, minor corrections so as to help you. A two-edged sword is wielded by a soldier for the purpose of killing you. This is talking about judgment. This is talking about cutting you in pieces, running you through, ending your life, and the separation of the soul from the spirit doesn't mean that it is used to get into the intricate parts of your psyche. It means it is separating you from your life. And of joints and marrow doesn't mean that it's going really deep inside the bone. It means it's going to cut your limbs off. And it's going to be a discerner. It's going to be a judge. Because the text here is referring to judgment. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is talking about the final judgment where you're going to give an account. And when you're there, there's going to be no camouflage. There's going to be no makeup. There's going to be no deflecting. It's just going to be ugly, naked you. 
before the Lord. And what is it that's going to come in and judge you or discern you or rip you to shreds? It is going to be the word of God. I said in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is talking about judgment. The word of God is not going to be your friend in the final day. And now it makes sense to me why he tells us to fear and why he tells us to strive to enter in. Sort of makes sense to me now. So, I have three observations or applications before we end. The first one is that there is a corporate nature to resting which is essential. Where in the world do you see that? Well, let me state it another way first. And that is that the people in this church are going to help you get to heaven and you're going to help them get to heaven. Remember that chapter 3 is where the exposition of Psalm 95 starts off. And in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that or so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how is it that we press on? It is through one another. And you say, well, where do you see that in the text today? I see it in verse 1. It's very subtle, but it is there. A very unusual word in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem... S-E-E-M, seem to have failed to reach it. You know what that word seem implies? It implies the appearance of. So you ought to avoid evil and you ought to avoid the appearance of evil. So if you fail to reach, that goes without saying that that is a bad thing. He says, I want to put an extra protective device in here, and that is, I don't want you to even seem as though you are drifting away or becoming hardened. Now, you have either been the recipient of this or you have exercised it yourself, and that is this. Someone will come up to you and they will say, sister, I can't put my finger on it, but something ain't right. You are not how you used to be. I don't see the joy of the Lord the way that it used to be. I, I, you're a little bit looser with your tongue. You're a little bit in more infrequent with your attendance. You don't seem to have that uh, vivaciousness for the Lord. I, I don't know. I'm just telling you, you're not who you used to be. What will normally happen in circumstances like that is that people will become immediately defensive and they will say, how dare you judge what is happening in my heart. You do not know what is happening in my heart. And that is true. Sometimes we get it wrong. We do not know what's happening in someone's heart. All we are saying is, you don't seem to be on fire for Christ. And one of the ways 
that we can help one another and rescue one another is to listen when someone tells us that things don't seem to be right. Because the truth of the matter is, what usually happens to me is that when someone comes to me like that, they have detected something. And because they have detected that and there's been this darkness in my life, I naturally, as a son of Adam, want there to be more darkness. And so what I will either do is, I'm not terribly defensive, but what I've seen people do is to be defensive or I will put them off by saying, everything's fine, you're, you're just imagining that. But, but in reality, they have detected something. And that fire is not there. And when you put off your brothers and sisters who tell you that things don't seem to be right, you need to remember, okay, congratulations, you have won this thing. But there is a day coming when you are going to be naked before God and everything that you have successfully hidden from your brother or your sister is going to be open and bare. And at that point, the word of God is going to kill you. Your brother or sister is there for your sake to help you get to heaven. Don't even seem as though there is any lukewarmness. But fear. We need each other. And if you're not a member of a church, you are in danger. We need each other to stay on the path. Here's number two. And that is that unbelief and disobedience are synonymous. They are, they mean the same thing. You see at the end of verse, chapter three, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And then when you get to chapter four, verse six, it says that they failed to enter because of disobedience. Well, which is it? Is it unbelief or is it disobedience? And the answer is yes, they are the same thing. The sad fact of American evangelicalism is this, that there are people who believe that they're going to heaven. And if you ask them, why are you going to heaven? They say, because I have belief. Because the Bible says, whoever believes shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. And for them, the definition of believing is to give mental assent or to agree with the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came from heaven to earth, that he died for our sins, that he rose on the third day, and that that same Bible says that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore we need a Savior and we need a substitute. And so we agree with the fact that Jesus is that Savior and that substitute, and we ask him to be our Savior, and we invite Jesus into our hearts, but then we are not changed. Whereas the Bible defines belief, yes, as the agreement with everything that the Bible says about the gospel truths about Jesus being our substitute and the need to respond, but the Bible also says that there, if there is genuine faith, then there will be obedience. Unbelief, disobedience, they are the same thing. You are not saved by obedience, but if you are saved, there will be obedience. And if there is not obedience, in other words, if you are living in unrepentant, habitual sin, the only hope that you have is that God is a liar. If he was just kidding about that, then you might have a chance. 
but do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And therefore, it makes perfect sense to fear and to strive. You can sit there and think that you are safe because I don't know what your sin is, and I don't, but nothing is hidden from his sight. Disobedience and unbelief synonymous. Final point. It's a short point. Gabe, I've been preaching for a long time. This is, this is the last point, and it's a short point. Man, I'm going to tell you it's a really good point. Here's the point. Today is today. And it still is today. And the restaurant is still open. There remains a rest for the people of God. Come to Jesus. Do not come to Jesus tomorrow. Come to Jesus today, accept him today, repent in him to, toward him today, rest in him today. Today is still happening. I mean, what a God we serve. Isn't it great? Hallelujah. Because there are some, like the children of Israel, who do not have a today. But we still have a today. You still can be right with God. Do not walk out of this building without getting right with God. Today is the day to do it. Today is the day of salvation. It is still today. Take advantage of that today. Father in heaven, oh Lord, what a wonderful congregation this is. People who will just sit and listen to the word of God so attentively. I am so invigorated by the people of God who have listened to the word of God today. I am so thankful for these people. And Lord, I don't know who I'm talking to because there might be somebody here who has not yet entered in. I pray by your spirit you would regenerate them and cause them, Lord, to have true saving faith and today to enter into salvation. And Lord, for those who have been saved, I pray that you will cause us all to exhale and to rest. And I pray that you will cause us to fear and to strive. And Lord, I pray that you will cause us to love you more than we ever have. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.